listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. In today's episode, we're going to unpack the topic of calorie counting for people living with diabetes. We'll talk about the benefits as well as exploring whether the practice of calorie counting has any harmful consequences. To discuss this important topic, I'm delighted to be joined by none other than the diabetes specialist dietitian and co-founder of the award-winning Carbs and Cows range of books and app, Chris Shayette. And without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Chris, who's going to tell us a bit more about himself. Well, firstly, thank you, Harriet, for having me on this episode. So I'm Chris. I've worked, as you mentioned, as a diabetes specialist dietitian within the NHS for over 20 years. And I've worked with a wide range of patients in that time, uh, particularly around type 1, type 2 and gestational diabetes. I've written several journal articles in academic journals on topics including weight management. And in 2009, I co-founded a company called Cello Publishing Limited with a photographer and graphic designer called Yellow Belolia. And we published our first best-selling book, which was called Carbs and Cows. And we've gone on to add a lot more to that range. And that, as you mentioned as well, has won uh, a number of awards. So that's included a number of national awards from the British Dietetic Association, including the Dame Barbara Clayton Award, the Elizabeth Washington Award, and most recently, uh, last year, I got the award for the Outstanding Achiever. I've been a previous committee member of the Diabetes Specialist Interest Group of the BDA, and I also volunteer for Diabetes UK and another charity called Food Cycle. Brilliant. Well, congratulations on all those achievements, Chris. And I'm sure um, many of our listeners are going to be really excited to delve into this topic of being a dietitian, but also being a published author. Before we delve into those topics, um, I should also mention we're going to talk to Chris a bit more about the inspiration behind his Carbs and Cows series, the process of what's actually involved writing a book, and why he feels his books and resources have become so revolutionary in dietetics. The episode will also explore evidence-based type 2 diabetes remission programs and their use of calorie counting. So welcome, Chris. And what we're going to do now is dive into our quick fire round of questions, uh, which we always ask our guests so that we p- people can get to know you on a bit more of a personal basis. So my first question to you is, what advice would you give to your younger self if you could go back in time? Mm, it's always a, always a cheeky one, this isn't it? But I, you know, I, I grew up in a, actually a really rural area. Um, I'm from quite a working class um, background, was the first person in my family to go to university. And I think looking back um, at my younger self, I, I definitely had quite a lack of confidence and, and sort of self-doubt as well. I think a lot of people at a younger age often do. So I think the key thing I would say is just don't let fear of the unknown or maybe what your perception of other people may think um, get in the way. Life's a really amazing journey. I've had lots of opportunities things have been up and down um, throughout my life but you know they've got me to where I am today so just embrace it great advice and probably building on that previous answer who has inspired you along your journey and why you know there's there's so many inspirational people in the world um there's a lot of negative media out there as well and um i think there's a lot of people both on a kind of national scale but also um locally with the in the charities that i volunteer for that that really inspire me every day some of the people that actually i, I read a lot around and um 
that really inspire me kind of more nationally and internationally. Uh, people like Tristan Stewart, who's um, the founder of Feedback. Um, people like Helen Browning as well, who's the, um, she's a farmer, but also the chief exec of the Soil Association. I've got a real passion around kind of um, food and the food food system and how you know that needs to, to kind of change to to make the world a better place and to make the world a more sustainable uh, place so also there's the chefs like dan barber in the, in the us um and also activists like um, michael pollan as well um he's a us food writer that i'm sure many people will have heard of um but as i mentioned actually on more on a, a grassroots level um i mentioned i volunteer for diabetes uk and food cycle and it's some of those people that are just working behind the scenes giving up their time and, and energy to help others that really inspire me i think they help to build um, communities and and make communities a better place to be thank you for sharing that chris and when you're not busy doing all your volunteering being a dietitian and writing books um how can how would we find you relaxing what's your fi- favorite hobby um, so I love swing dancing. Um, if people don't know what swing dancing is, it's a kind of 1920s, 1930s uh, collection of different dances, things like Charleston and, and Lindy Hop and Balboa. Um, it's it's a great way to be creative. Um, I'm always learning. I've been doing it for about 10 years um, now. It's great exercise and a really good social environment as well. Uh, you get to meet loads of loads of other people. You can travel to other countries and, and do it in, in other countries as well. So that's kind of one of my favorite hobbies and how I like to relax. Sounds like you might be a bit of a pro if you're traveling to other countries to do it, playing down your achievements. <laughs> okay, so moving on to our main topics for discussion. Today is obviously a big dietetic debate around is calorie counting helpful or harmful to people living with diabetes? So just before we delve into that topic, I'd love to set the scene with you and find out more about what attracted you to dietetics in the first instance and what led to you specializing in diabetes, Chris. Mm. So uh, one of my other hobbies and something that I've always enjoyed doing from a young age was cooking. And it's something that I still do a lot today to, again, to relax. I did home economics at school and was pretty good at science as well. And it was actually my home ec teacher that was the person that first mentioned dietetics to me. I'd never heard of it before. And she was the one that kind of inspired me to read it more, find out about it. And I went and did some work experience with a dietitian. The thing that really drew me to the profession was the fact it was a helping profession. It got to use my love of food and science as well. And um, I really actually enjoyed the the, uh, work that I did and some of the work that I I looked at uh, when I was on my uh, work experience placement was around sort of helping people to change their um, behavior and improve their health and the sort of psychology around that was really fascinating to me so that's kind of what led me into dietetics um, i went to surrey university um, i got my first job in doncaster and i did a fair bit of diabetes actually within that first job and that really attracted me more to definitely wanting to work in an outpatient environment I did some additional training around behavior change and motivational interviewing techniques. And I really enjoyed the kind of education side of that. And again, the sort of psychology of um, how we kind of speak to people and how um, people's behaviors can be um, influenced really by many, many different factors. Um, So I found that really fascinating and that kind of led into me getting a job eventually in Chelmsford. It was a brand new post in diabetes and I worked there for seven years, helping to kind of uh, set up an education 
um, module within that team as well and uh, really sort of embedded myself within within that team there and then I went on to work at King's for a number of years as well um, up until January this year. Gosh, quite quite a um, significant background you've got and very varied as well. Um, so just building on what you said about obviously your background and your interest in, in diabetes and weight loss, um, many people listening will perhaps be familiar with you from uh, your best-selling book, Carbs and Cows. But for people who haven't perhaps heard of it before, could you also give us a bit of background to the Carbs and Cows books and resources and tell us perhaps what they aim to achieve? Mm-hmm. Sure. So our books um, and resources, and we have an app as well, um, they are there. The, the initial book we made actually was really around sort of diabetes management and particularly around sort of type one uh, diabetes and carb counting. But as it's expanded over the years, um, we've gone into different areas as well. And the kind of key thing that we do is we use images of everyday foods and meals and recipes in a variety of different portion sizes. And within the books as well, we display um, the calories and also different nutrients such as the carbs and protein fat, saturated fat, fiber, and sometimes alcohol and five a day portions as well. And really what the books are about was to try and get sometimes quite complex information across to a variety of different audiences. Um, and it, over the years, we've actually um, published quite a variety of books. So we've currently got 11 books in publication in the UK, and we've got one in Germany uh, and one in Portugal, and our app is available worldwide. And really the, the key aim of what we're trying to do is just to try and help as many people as possible to, to achieve their health goals. And that can range from helping to ease the burden of carb counting and someone living with type one diabetes or to helping healthcare professionals explain portion sizes to um, to their patients. So really a, a big range of things. And, and what actually inspired you to write the book originally, having been working clinically as a specialist diabetes dietitian, what, what led to that um, transition to published author? Sure. So, well, as I mentioned, I was working in Chelmsford and I was working uh, in, a, in an education program, a one week kind of program, um, similar to Daphne, if people have heard of that, working with people with type one. At the time when we were teaching about carb counting, all that was really available were lists of foods. Um, so you'd have, you know, say a list saying 100 grams of um, cooked rice had 30 grams of carbohydrate in. But those lists were quite restrictive for a number of reasons. One, if someone had, say, numeracy, um, sort of low numeracy and was struggling a bit with maths, um, it was quite difficult for someone then to translate what 100 grams of, of rice would actually look like on a plate. And then if they had a different amount, then having to do a calculation to try and work that out was very tricky um, for them. Um, there's also a certain number of different groups that um, I think it kind of made carb counting a lot more difficult for. So it was quite hard to engage teenagers and younger people to, to do carb counting. And so the thing that kind of led me into trying to make something for, for these uh, group of patients was to try and make the burden a bit easier and to try and make things easier. And I experimented with some food photography um, with, with Yellow, who I mentioned before, tried that out and it was really well received and people really understood um, a lot more 
by looking at a photograph and looking at their plate of food, how to relate the two and how to calculate the amount of carbohydrate that was in their food. Um, so that was kind of the initial spark. Um, what actually then led into sort of setting up a, a company was just the the idea of, okay, let's take loads more photos and let's see if we can do something with all of these and, and make those maybe into a book. And that was a about a year and a half long process of photographing hundreds of different foods um, in my flat and um, then researching sort of setting up a company and actually researching how to get a book published and, and we actually self-published um uh, which was something that was quite new to do at the time it's something that's become i think uh, a little bit more easy to do for some people but um it's still uh, quite a process to go through no it's a, a fantastic journey and i'm sure um for a lot of us dietitians perhaps working clinically it can seem very daunting um going off and doing something completely different um let's come back to that perhaps later on in the episode but i just wanted to um, go back to the books themselves and ask you who are the books aimed at is it predominantly clinicians such as dietitians or are they also suitable for patients to use as well yeah exactly so they're, they're suitable for everyone and we we don't really dictate who uses our resources um certainly they're recommended by healthcare professionals um across the board so whether that be dietitians or nutritionists or diabetes nurses and um, gps practice nurses so we know that they're used in all of these kind of areas but they're also recommended for um for people to go out and and, and buy as well um and they're used in a whole range of areas both from diabetes to cystic fibrosis for looking at fat content of foods um, in renal, sports nutrition. Uh, they've been used in research um, projects as well. And I know they're also used for teaching undergraduates uh, uh, around kind of food and nutrition. And um, thinking back to your your more clinical days in a hospital setting, and, and bearing in mind that a lot of our listeners are clinical dietitians, how would you recommend that um, someone listening uses the Carbs and Cows books and resources within their clinical practice with their patients? And can you perhaps give us some examples from your, from your own experiences of how you've incorporated the books into your practice? So there's, there's a wide range of uses. It really does depend on the, the clinical situation. If we look at my own experience working in type one education, we would tend to use them on things like the Daphne courses. So Daphne is a, a one week structured education course for people living with type one diabetes. And we'd use them in various different sessions on that course. So for example, if we were looking at how to estimate carbohydrate visually, we would be asking people to maybe look at a plate of food, have a go at estimating the carbohydrates and then looking in the book or the app to actually work out how much carbohydrate is actually in that food to see uh, what the variation uh, might be. And then we'd also show people how to actually weigh food out and calculate the carbohydrate accurately. So they would then use um, the book or the app to um, go alongside that to either enter the weight into the app or do a calculation uh, from one of the, the foods in the book. We also have some flashcards. So another example, um, when I volunteer at Diabetes UK, uh, working with some children and families um, living with type 1 diabetes, we'd use flashcards for a higher-lower game. So they can look at a card, have a guess at how much carbs are in, and then look at another one and decide whether it's got more or less carbohydrate in there. So that's just a couple of examples about how we we might use the resources. But as I say, there's a whole range of different situations that um, people would be, be using the resources. You know, we've got a book on gestational diabetes, for example. So um, other 
clinicians maybe using that within their clinics, uh, recommending that people uh, use that book to give them more inspiration about meal planning and looking at ways to perhaps reduce carbohydrate in some of their meals and snacks. Amazing. So very versatile books that can be used in a lot of different ways. Um, And of course, the books have gone on to win you multiple awards, some of which you mentioned earlier. Why do you think that the books have been so well received? I think simplicity is is the key. I've had so many people come up to me over the years and go, oh, I wish I had that idea. Um, you know, it's so simple, but so effective. And I think that's the kind of the key to it, really. You know, we've all heard a picture speaks a thousand words. And, and it's true, you know, having a picture there and being able to just refer to that and then compare that to a snack or a drink or meal that you're having. Um, it just helps people to visualize it and understand it much more easily than than just mentioning the, you know, the name of a food or talking, as I said before, about a list. I think it also saves people quite a lot of time. I know particularly from my own clinical experience, both in teaching a concept, but also in someone maybe living with a long-term condition such as as diabetes. If they've got a resource or a tool that can can save them time, they're going to use it time and time again um, in their everyday life. And it's also really accessible to a wide audience. So I mentioned before that younger people with type 1 diabetes, sometimes it can be quite hard to engage them in carb counting. And I remember when we first bought our app out back in uh, 2011, uh, yeah, 2011, and uh, the apps were only really just sort of getting going at that point. And there were so many parents going out and actually buying their kids smartphones so they could just have the app on their phone and they were starting to engage with carb counting for the very first time. So I think, you know, making it easy and accessible was was a key thing. And I'm interested to hear in terms of the marketing around the books, is that something that you got involved with yourself personally or did the um, the publisher and, and people that you collaborated with help with that? Yeah, a bit of both. So we, we, our company is the publisher as well. So we kind of do everything. So uh, we've done a lot of the marketing ourselves and we, we've used a little bit of outside um, uh, influence as well to help with that. But a lot of it's been me going out and talking to to other dietitians and other healthcare professionals presenting at conferences we've had stands at conferences like diabetes uk where people can come and chat to us and just kind of see um, what we do um i've done like i'm doing today things like podcasts as well um, and different interviews we've been published in different media and some of the diabetes uk magazines as well so there's been a lot of that um also reviews are really important so um if you look on some of the book review sites. So Amazon, for example, we've got getting up to nearly a thousand um, reviews on there. And that really drives people to go on, look what other people have said, look about the benefits that they're getting. And that sort of drives um, sales as well. But I think one of the, you know, the biggest kind of marketing tools for us actually is, is healthcare professionals actually using the resources and then recommending them on. And I think if they didn't like them and they didn't find them helpful, they wouldn't be doing that. And year on year, we've we've continued to to kind of be selling the books and doing well, and they've continued continue, continued to be you know really bestsellers in the in their category. And I think that's because people are getting so much value from them. And does the novelty ever wear off of um, seeing your friends, peers, colleagues, you know, having that book that was your creation, your baby, in their clinical practice? Does that novelty wear off? 
Uh, no, it doesn't. No, I mean, you know, I when when we started the company and when this all started out, it was never, you know, the intention to, you know, be necessarily here. Twelve years on, we didn't really know where it was going to go. But the fact that it's helped so many people, and every time I go to a conference or you know I'm you know doing a clinic or uh, uh, doing a, a volunteering with Diabetes UK, and people come up and say how much it's helped them, that's all, that's always very you know heartwarming to me, and you know I never get bored of that. Now, the books themselves have evolved and expanded quite a lot over the last few years. You mentioned covering different areas like gestational diabetes, for example. How do you decide which different topics you're going to write about in your next series of books? So a lot of that really comes from trends in what's happening in kind of in the market, uh, maybe new research that's um, come out as well. So one example of that would be the low calorie diet recipes book that we have, which kind of came on the back of um, the work that was being done around diabetes remission and the uh, Michael Moses 800 calorie book as well. It was kind of trying to just put out some more ideas and inspiration and recipes for, for people if they were following more of a food um, based approach and um, we also you know listen to to feedback from clinicians so the world food book that we uh, made that really came about through a couple of clinicians coming and kind of cornering me at a diabetes uk conference they'd been working a lot in that area and they they were well aware and i was well aware as well that there was a, a big gap in some of the culturally diverse foods both in our resources but also on a national level so that was one of the reasons that book kind of came into fruition um, so it's really been kind of driven um, by that and with our app again that's been that often gets driven by what people tell us what feedback we're getting and we do research as well where we can we do some surveys and we get feedback from healthcare professionals so that's that's kind of what we tend to to do um one of the next books i can't say a lot about it at the moment but um the, that we're doing is you know we just try and fill a gap in the market working in in diabetes as i do I often know where things might be lacking, where there's not enough resources, and then that will be you know, an area we'll kind of research a bit more about, chat to people and see if that's where we want to put our efforts. Just going back to the World Foods Carbs and Cows book that you mentioned, um, can you tell us a bit more about the process of writing this? For example, um, did you consult with experts who have personal experiences of different cultural or um, ethical differences in diets, and, and how did that work? So this book was actually, it was quite a, um, a different approach to some of the other books that we've done in that it was a collaboration, both with ourselves, but also with a GP and a dietitian. So a GP called Jones and John and a dietitian called Salma Miha, who were both working in Northwest London at the time. They'd actually been doing quite a lot of work at their local population and looking about what was maybe missing for the communities that were living there, particularly around sort of the Brent area. And um, they they knew that from some of the questionnaire research that they'd done, that when people were going to consultations and seeing a dietitian, they found that 77% of those that they um, did a questionnaire with had received dietary advice, but it wasn't actually culturally relevant to them. So they'd developed a pictorial booklet, like a little pilot booklet that they'd done to see if that would help to facilitate engagement with healthcare professionals. And they found that it did. And that's when they came and approached us, knowing that we had our experience in publishing and the experience of taking all the photographs as well. And we then went on to spending quite a lot of time looking at what was needed for the population within their area. Uh, the main populations that they wanted to sort of focus on were uh, people from back from backgrounds from African, Arabic, Caribbean and South Asian populations. 
And so we uh, looked at doing some surveys and we surveyed over a thousand people, and both people living with diabetes and healthcare professionals as well. And that all fed into both the types of foods that went into the book, but also around the design of what happened in that book as well. Uh, one of the things that was quite different was our use of blood glucose icons. They were quite controversial to healthcare professionals. So Salma and Joan had originally used sugar spoons to represent five grams of carbs. We went for blood glucose icons. A lot of dietitians that we spoke to were not that keen about using those. But interestingly, when you spoke to people living with diabetes and people in those communities, they understood that perfectly. They that you know it was a really good way to visually show what possible effect this food might have on blood glucose levels. Um, you know, I, I do understand that has to be taken in context with you know the type of food that the person is obviously eating as well. It's not just about the effect on the blood glucose level, but people found it a really good way of opening up a conversation. And so that's kind of what led into that book. And as I say, a lot of research about the kind of foods to go in there. And um, that led to that being published in 2019. Brilliant. No, it's um, it's a great resource. And I know there's been a lot of work across dietetics, obviously, with making things like the Eat Well Guide more accessible and culturally relevant as well. So it ties in nicely with that. Um, how do you feel your books meet the needs of evolving dietary preferences? For example, we see, we're seeing a real rise in plant-based alternative products at the moment. Can you talk us through how you've had to kind of adapt and evolve to those sorts of trends along the way? Mm-hmm. So this is certainly an area, as, as I mentioned before, I'm very passionate about and very aware of as well. And things like our recipe books, we, we've we always made sure with those that we do put in a number of plant-based um, options. With things like our app, we are expanding our food database all, all the time with that. And um, certainly in the last year, we've gone from over 5,000 over to over 18,000 portions. And we're, we're really conscious about getting a lot more brands um, in there. So just in the last few months, we've added things like Beyond Meats and this, Corn, Podme Dodds, who do a lot of British-made um, lentils and pulses. We're adding a lot more like plant-based um, milks in there and um, yogurts, vegan cheese, tofu, seitan, those kind of foods. So we are consciously doing that uh, certainly i think you know into the future when we're looking at um maybe new books and uh, maybe revisions to the editions of our books that we we are doing i'm certainly conscious about making sure we were writing more about kind of plant-based um foods and also you know taking that into account particularly in terms of planet health as well i think it's going to be certainly a trend that we um we take and a lot, a lot of other um books in this kind of category will take as well and I was just wondering, where do you draw the line with foods that you include? Because obviously in a book, you're limited by the number of pages mm-hmm. and there are just so many thousands of brands that people might be eating. So how do you go about making that selection? Again, a lot of that is based on feedback. So it's maybe based on what people are searching for uh, within the app and um, foods that people ask us to to add as well. So we we we're quite active on social media we've got something coming out i think in next week or two where we'll we've got a post that's going to say what brands do you want added to the app and it's that that often drives what we will we will do next and um so we'll certainly look at you know, popular brands but we'll also base them on what people are asking for now just moving on to the um kind of clinical relevance of of the carbs and cows resources um diabetes being one of the main ones can you talk us through the benefits of people living with diabetes and counting calories and carbs? 
So for those living with type 2 diabetes um, who are overweight, we know weight loss is really key in helping to improve glycemic control and reducing cardiovascular risk and possibly reducing reliance on medication. And, and also it can lead to remission. And also with people living with type 1 diabetes, if they're overweight, which you know many people are, um, certainly uh, there are strategies such as calorie counting that could be considered but i think if we just think of calorie counting we've got a caveat it with the fact that there's loads of different ways that people can lose weight and this is only one approach that might work for some people but it's certainly not i don't think a standalone approach it needs to be kind of added in with with other areas and we also need to recognize that um, there's lots of complex reasons why a person might be overweight and that could be everything from the environment to genetics, cooking skills and, and income, just to, to name a few. So I think awareness of calories can be quite a helpful tool in driving food choices and portion sizes. But we do have to recognize it's not just about the calories. It's got to come with that package of education and understanding that not all calories are the same. Um, and we don't eat calories, we eat food. So, you know, if we're talking to someone, for example, that's having lots of lots of ultra processed foods within their, their diet and they're just switching and choosing lower calorie versions of, of, of more processed foods that's not going to be anywhere near as helpful as um, getting that that package of education in that's kind of helping them to make more informed choices and maybe moving away from from that to maybe foods that are higher in fiber and less processed um, for just as an example so i think um you know calorie counting per se on its own it's it's um we've got to just kind of think about what we're what we're packaging that with and it can potentially have a place but it's certainly not the be all and end all um and, and if you think about carbohydrate counting again in in terms of diabetes education um you know it really depends on the individual so certainly in type 1 diabetes we know it's kind of one of the key cornerstones of management in terms of the decision making around how much insulin a person will take um, with that meal there's, a, there's certainly a very strong relationship and it's a key part of structured education when we think more about type 2 diabetes it depends on the kind of medication that person might be on so carb counting might be a quite useful thing but for other people it might just be more about carbohydrate awareness and knowing that carbs get turned into glucose and they can affect the blood glucose levels um but again we don't eat carbohydrate we eat food so we need to know you know the difference between a slice of white bread and a slice of granary or sourdough bread or you know the difference between a food that may be more ultra processed and a more of a food that is a, a healthier option um and not all carbohydrate is the same as just as not all calories are the same yeah, and, that, and actually that leads on really nicely to a question that was just running through my head when you were talking about thinking about food as a whole rather than just fixating on the individual macro or micronutrients. And what are your thoughts on calories on menus? Because obviously that's a fairly new initiative that we've been hearing a lot about in the media recently. Yeah, I think, you know, it's quite a, a reductionist approach, really, and it doesn't take into account the rest of the, the the food in terms of, you know, the other nutrients that are in there and whether that is a, a healthier or, you know, a less healthy um, food. So I think, you know, in terms of decision making, is it a good or a bad thing? Possibly. I don't know if it's that helpful for that many people. And we do have to recognize that for a certain number of people, it's going to potentially lead to um, feelings of guilt. Of, oh, I've got 
you know, I'm going for that food, it's got a thousand calories in, they may still go for it, but is that actually then leading to like a stress response within the body and the thought of having that food, that social judgment, is that increasing anxiety levels? And is that then feeding into these like negative thought patterns and, and then potentially leading to quite unhelpful behaviors around denying foods and guilt around eating? And I think that's where, you know, we don't necessarily have enough research yet to say whether these, this is, that's what's happening, but certainly, you know, uh, that's that's my kind of concern about putting um, calories on just calories on restaurants without any other kind of educational kind of signposting, if you like. Yes. And just building on that um, with the carbs and cows resources, are, are there any particular subgroups of patients that you wouldn't generally recommend using them with or perhaps calorie counting might not be appropriate to use with, for example? Yeah, I think, you know, if you if you just if you were just talking about calorie counting, and you were saying, you know, what what kind of you know, person, what kind of patient would that not be helpful for? That I think there's, you know, quite a range of people actually where it would not be appropriate. Certainly anyone that's got any kind of disordered um, eating or, you know, um, medical history of a, an eating disorder, then I think you need to be very, very careful uh, about discussing calorie counting for some of the reasons I've just mentioned around setting up those unhelpful um, thought patterns. Um, also, people maybe with a personality disorder where, you know, counting every calorie could, could lead to maybe heightened anxiety as well. And there's other patient groups like people that are pregnant, um, children, teenagers, those who've got a low body mass index, um, you'd want to explore the reasons for that. Uh, and I think the other people as well that we just need to be considerate of are people that have maybe lower numeracy and literacy levels. And um, if you're kind of then talking about calorie counting, if that person is is struggling, they may not want to you know, kind of talk about that. It could lead to sort of shame and, and stigma if you're trying to get them to count and they they really just don't understand uh, the numbers. And, um, you know, you don't want to be kind of feeding into that and, and making people feel ashamed. So in that kind of situation, you know, it would be much more appropriate to be thinking about kind of handy portions or maybe a, a kind of picture, picture focused approach to to education with somebody. Yes, just um, on that point about perhaps um, it not being the most appropriate tool for someone who struggles with um, numeracy, for example, um, from your experience working as a diabetes dietitian, how would you um, kind of make that judgment as to whether or not it's a suitable tool to use in the first instance with your patients? Um, yeah, so it's just about getting getting trust and opening up that conversation with people. So, you know, I always acknowledge when we do our education sessions that there's a lot of maths involved um, with, with particularly, I, I do a lot more on carb counting, to be honest, than, than calorie counting. But if we're talking about carb counting, there is a lot of maths involved with that, both with um, the, the numbers, if people are weighing out food as well. So it's always important to acknowledge that to people and just to, to say to people, if anyone sort of, feels that you know that they find it tricky with the numbers and um, come and have a chat um there are there are ways that we can kind of get around that as i mentioned we might do more picture focused so rather than kind of emphasizing the numbers as such it may be just more trying to match the food on the plate to um, maybe one of the pictures in the app or the book and just try and get it as close to that as possible um rather than having to sort of weigh uh, foods out or we might talk as I say about handy portions so we might be you know talking about the palm of your hand and what that might look like if that was a potato um, and and trying to kind of do more education that way rather than just talking numbers to people. Now I, f I feel like you've covered the disadvantages and um, harmful consequences to calorie counting in quite a lot of detail there but are there any alternative ways that you might potentially help patients living with diabetes to lose weight um, aside from calorie counting that you've used in your own clinical practice? 
Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's loads of different options for uh, for kind of weight management um, instead of calorie counting. So, uh, you know, when I'm talking to people in general, um, most of the time I'll be um, generally not talking about calories or, or carbohydrate. I'll be talking about real foods and about what food choices people make on a day-to-day basis, the kind of things they like and don't like, um, what their current eating patterns are like, um, how their you know day-to-day life impacts on and how they make choices around their food. So, you know, about how their shopping habits, um, whether they do any kind of planning of their meals as well, what their level of income might be in terms of, you know, the kind of foods that they're buying and the sort of takeaways they're having. And I think kind of building that relationship with people and kind of getting that understanding um, and trust between you is is a much more healthy relationship than to start having conversations around what someone's knowledge of, of different foods might be, um, maybe things they've tried in the past as well. And then that can sort of lead into often them having the already, they've already got the kind of ideas and um, and decision-making about things they might want to try. Um, so getting them to kind of try and come up with ideas and you kind of guiding and working with them, I think is a really healthy way to to try and lead into to sort of changes in people's um, sort of behavior and, and their food um, choices as well. Um, of course, there are other options for for managing um, kind of weight and for if someone is trying to lose weight. So it could be everything from a, you know, a lower carbohydrate based um, diet. And again, it wouldn't necessarily have to be around numbers. You can be talking about the kind of foods that people are eating and how they can make changes to those. Um, or it could be more like a, a Mediterranean kind of diet approach. And again, just kind of talking about what that might encompass and what kind of foods the person's having and how they could maybe bring in other foods that um, might uh, might kind of change their food intake. So, uh, you know, there's a whole range of different options out there. There's not really one thing that is right for everyone. It really depends on the individual that you have in front of you and, um, and what's going to be right for them. Yeah, having lots of different tools in the toolbox, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, obviously, this wouldn't be a dietitian cafe episode without delving a bit into the evidence base behind the carbs and cows concept. So can you tell us about any interesting studies, perhaps, that have been done into the use of your carbs and cows resources, particularly in the area of diabetes? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's there's not been any kind of uh, big studies that have you kind of looked uh, per se at um, whether our, our resources actually improve someone's um, HbA1c, for example. We do know there was a there was a post that was done a few years ago at a Diabetes UK conference that um, was done looking at whether using the carbs and cows resources improved um, someone's knowledge around carbohydrate counting, and and it certainly um, did do that. Um, we've certainly got a lot of anecdotal. Uh, evidence, as I mentioned before, from reviews uh, from people that have, uh, we've got thousands of those that sort of feed back into the fact that people are finding it is improving their understanding and their knowledge uh, of diabetes and actually helping with weight loss as well. There's numerous kind of um, reports of people losing weight with our resources as well. Now, I think a burning question for a lot of people listening will be how accurate is calorie counting amongst patients? Because dietitians, we're so familiar with um, people perhaps under or overestimating their portion sizes. So what are your experiences of this? And and if it's not particularly accurate, why why do you think that might be? Um, So, I mean, we know that calorie counting and carbohydrate counting as well is often not that accurate. I mean, we know if we just talk, look at okay, carb counting as one example, and then I'll talk maybe a little bit about calorie counting as well. So in, in carbohydrate counting, we know that as the portion sizes get bigger, there's there's been a little bit of research that's looked at the fact that with 
particularly large portion sizes. So if you think of something like a pizza, people tend to underestimate um, how much carbohydrate is in there. And I think that would be the same if we were talking about calorie counting as well. Why is that? Well, if we think of diabetes specifically, and maybe someone living with type 1 diabetes, a larger portion of a pizza, say, that's maybe got 120 grams of carbs in, that's going to mean that that person has to take quite a large amount of insulin for that, that meal. So that could be, for example, 12 units of insulin. Now, that may be way more than is a typical dose for them. And that's going to then lead into kind of the thought of if I take that amount of insulin, is that going to potentially increase my risk of a hypo, which is quite a healthy uh, thing to be thinking. And uh, the research that was done in this area showed that, as I say, the larger the portion size, the, the more likely it is that people would underestimate. And I think that's one of the things that feeds into that. Um, I think also when we think about portion sizes, people don't always, you know, when you've got a, a larger portion size, people maybe tend to, to underestimate. Um, they don't want to necessarily kind of maybe admit that to themselves. And certainly if they're talking to a healthcare professional, they uh, are probably wanting to be maybe more pleasing that healthcare professional and not wanting to admit that. So that may be why people tend to, to underestimate. Um, I think also when we think about calorie counting, I, I listened to a really interesting um, webinar the other day on my NutriWeb by Giles Yeo. I'm sure many of the listeners may have, have listened to that as well about why calories don't count. And, you know, when we actually think about actual calorie counting and the calorie counts on packaging and, you know, in our books as well, we've got to just take into account that, um, as Giles was saying, the the calories uh, are not actually that accurate. So he was saying like 100 grams of, uh, sorry, 100 calories of protein, it takes about 30 calories to to digest that. Um, so the calorie counts that we see are not that accurate. Uh you know, a, a gram of protein should probably be more, more like three calories rather than the four that we, we all kind of know about. And when we think about high fiber foods as well, we know not all of the energy from those foods is going to be absorbed. So we've got to take those factors into account. So I think that's just kind of maybe a, a couple of reasons why, um, you know, we, we just need to kind of be aware that potentially with larger portions, people might be underestimating. But also, we need to think about, you know, if people are kind of quite rigidly counting calories and you know trying to count every single calorie it's quite useful information i think as healthcare professionals just to make them aware that it's not a massively accurate science you know the science was done many many years ago over 100 years ago so we've got to just kind of bear that in mind and yes it might be a useful tool to have an awareness of calories and and maybe use that for potentially for doing things like meal planning um in some people but it's not a you know hard fact and from your discussions with um, peers and other dietitians, what do you think is the general consensus amongst di um, diabetes dietitians with regards to calorie counting? Is it is it something that they tend to be in favour with or, or not? Um, I don't think it's really a widely used approach um, on its own. So um, I think it has to be taken in context. I don't think that many clinicians working in diabetes would just use for example, calorie counting and, and not be kind of using that alongside other approaches. So yes, you know, if you're, you know, I think the key thing really is for, for someone living with diabetes to go on a structured education course, ideally, um, and on there, they'll, they'll often get uh, advice around food choices and portion sizes and calorie counting, carb counting will be, be discussed as well, um, no doubt. But as a standalone um way of treating um and uh, approaching you know maybe weight loss i, I don't think that many uh, people would be using that as what that's my own experience and when i certainly talk to colleagues what i would find as well 
And just finally, um, you mentioned a bit earlier about um, diabetes remission programs becoming increasingly prevalent and popular. Can you tell us a bit more about the um, evidence-based programs that are out there and um, how they utilize calorie counting within their programs? So there's been quite a lot of work going into this area in the last few years. I'm sure people may be, be aware of those. Um, a lot of this was funded by Diabetes UK. And the biggest kind of landmark trial was called the DIRECT trial. And this used a low-calorie liquid-based diet of around 850 calories, which was done over a 12 to 20 weeks um, period. Um, there was also a relapse protocol built into that. So if people were regaining a certain amount of weight, they could be offered to um, kind of go back onto uh, some of that um, low calorie diet liquid uh, program for a period of time to try and help them to to relose some of that weight. Um, and what the, the direct tr trial reported was that um, initially... 46% of the participants were in remission after a year and 36% after two years. And the really interesting kind of outcomes on this trial were the fact that the more weight people lost, the more likely they were to achieve remission. And this trial was um, done in people that had type 2 diabetes for less than six years. So it's important just to, to be aware of that. We don't necessarily know what will happen in people that maybe have had type 2 diabetes for longer than six years. Um, so really, if people were losing more than 15 kilos of, of body weight, they achieved a really high rate of remission after one year, it was 86%. Um, but what we don't really know yet is really how long that remission lasts for, what happens when people start to, to regain weight, how much of a legacy effect uh, that is likely to have for people. But it does seem that it probably will have a legacy effect. We just don't know yet um, because it's, it's too early days but certainly i think you know the key thing that's come out of this in terms of calorie counting obviously these are quite calorie controlled ways of um helping people to achieve weight loss but the the people that are doing them are not actually necessarily calorie counting it's just that the the drinks and the the bars that they're having during that kind of low calorie diet period are um based as i say on about 850 calories um that when they do the education though around healthy eating and reintroduction of food yes there is uh, advice around calorie counting and meal planning but as i say that's not just standalone that's also taking into account um what healthy eating looks like the eat well plate um and trying to kind of get people to reintroduce food in a and maybe a, a different way to they might have been eating prior to the program that's really interesting. Thank you for that thorough overview. Um, and just to wrap things up, Chris, I'm wondering what what do you think the future holds for carbs and cows? What do you think? What do you think will be the next big thing for you? So we're spending a lot of our time and energy at the moment working on our app. And I think digital is certainly the way to go. Yes, it's not necessarily going to be for everyone. We'll always as still have our books available as well. As you mentioned before, there is only a certain amount of information you can put into a book and you can't change it quickly as well. Whereas with um, a digital offering like an app, you can make um, changes. It's really expensive to make an app um, and it does take a lot of time and effort, but we are um, really building on that and building on the content and also the functionality. And I think um, there's a lot we can do with that and a lot we're looking to do. So I think over the coming uh, weeks, months and years, I think you'll start to see that develop and uh, we'll be listening to feedback and working to try and get that to not only present information, but also work as a kind of behavior change tool um, for both people and for healthcare professionals working with them as well. 
Very exciting. And most importantly, what happens to all that lovely food at the end of the photo shoots? <laughs> I get asked that a lot. I'm sure you're aware of that. So, yeah, we, we tend to eat quite a bit of it, but um, we, we have our uh, neighbours that uh, sometimes get some of the food. There's also, uh, as someone that works a lot, as I mentioned, and is very conscious around sort of food waste, we, we sometimes use food um, food apps like Olio, so we might give some of it away in the local area. Um, and if we can give some of it to the charity that I work for as well, if I'm doing one of the sessions, then we might do that. Um, but yeah, it doesn't doesn't get wasted. <laughs> Brilliant. And what would you like to be the main message that listeners take away from today's podcast? I think if we're talking about calorie counting, I know that was one of the focuses of the session today. We've just got to remember that weight management is really complex. There's so many factors that, that feed into why a person might be living with obesity and just focusing just on calories is is not the way to go. It's very reductionist and it could be really damaging to somebody. So it's so important to, to understand that person, to work with them and to, to really have individualized nutrition. And that's not just around calorie counting, you know, that's with, with any clients and, and patients that we're working with. Well, that's been a really fascinating episode, Chris. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your valuable experience with us. And a huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, as ever, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. You'll also find Chris's contact details and some of the um, studies that he's mentioned in the show notes. And all that's left to be said is thank you for listening. Thank you, Chris. And our next episode of the Dietitian Cafe will be out very soon. 